Okay, so hey everyone and welcome back to another episode of Default Global. This is where we connect with global first entrepreneurs and remote work experts from all around the world to share their experiences. Our guest today is Brett McLaughlin, uh, Chief Technology Officer at Carbon6. Brett, thanks for joining us today. Yeah, great to be here. It's a, it's a really cool topic, so I'm excited to, to sort of answer questions and, and maybe you and I get in some good conversation. Yeah, absolutely. So, Brett, uh, before we start, could you tell us a little about yourself and how you got to where you are today? Sure, sure. Uh, so I'm an engineer by training. I've been doing engineering work since I was uh, professionally since I was 19. So that's 27 years ago, believe it or not. It feels like a long time. Um, was an individual contributor for really the first eight to 10 years of my career and primarily woke, uh, focused on platforms sort of SaaS before SaaS was as big as it was. Um, I've done a lot of education, uh, authored a lot of technical books sort of in the middle of my career. And then for the last five to eight years, have been in various forms of leadership, uh, running a team at NASA that moved a lot of their data to the cloud, and then working on e-commerce platforms. So I've worked for e-commerce uh, sort of Shopify competitors, and that leads me all the way to, to Carbon6, where you know, we are an Amazon Marketplace software and have been building the world's first integrated platform for that. So it's really bringing together platforms, which I've been building and leading my entire career, uh, along with the Amazon Marketplace, which is a really robust and exploding global marketplace, as you know. So sort of the perfect storm. Yeah, that's great. And uh, speaking about your current company, Carbon6, so as far as I understood, uh, Carbon6 is focused on removing this kind of barriers to selling online and supporting e-commerce sellers, right? So could you could you maybe share some insights into these challenges and opportunities sure. maybe that arise when operating in the sure. uh, this global e-commerce landscape and how your company you know addresses this these challenges? Sure, it, it's a very interesting marketplace and. For I think for a lot of people, if you've been around um, e-commerce and, and, and lived through the last 15 years in tech, it's actually a familiar story. So it's a very fragmented space where there are lots of individual small tools, much like the sort of pre-Shopify, pre-e-com area, where people would have spreadsheets all over the place to manage inventory and to manage stock. They might have a tool for their advertising. They might have Google ads. They've got all these different tabs open, right? And what we saw on the e-commerce side is consolidation and integration became the really powerful tools there. People didn't want 14 different tabs open. We're finding that's also the case in the Amazon marketplace. And to some degree, it's an even more exacerbated problem because the decisions you make in one tool or in one area of your business, maybe you're ordering more inventory, maybe you're starting a big campaign around Prime Day are not reflected in the other tools. So you have to keep up with, well, I'm adding more inventory, so therefore I need to change my pricing or I need to change my shipping schedule. I'm adding more advertisements, so I expect more traffic coming in, so I need to do more with my inventory. All these segments are connected. And so it has really screamed for the need of integration into a singular platform, which is what we're building. Now it's it's particularly interesting to, to your audience and to the global space because we began largely by acquiring best of breed tools that many of which had been created by individual Amazon sellers. So the seller becomes very successful. They have some process that they're doing over and over and over. 
and that entrepreneurial spirit causes them to say, I'm going to go hire an engineer or two to build something for my business. And they build it and it starts maybe as an individual tool, but these successful entrepreneurs, they're, they're very seller minded. So they think, well, I, I should see if anyone else wants to buy this same tool. I want to recoup my investment, right? This is the way entrepreneurs think is they're always looking for, you know, ways to bring in revenue, ways to get a return. And so we purchased a number of these tools, 13, 14, 15, over the last two years. And many of them have remote teams, very small one, two, three person teams all over the place. So when I joined as CTO, I was really thrust into this global workspace, not because we did it by design. We didn't say, let's build you know, a business unit over in China. Let's build a business unit over in the UK. But because all these tools had individual teams, often not communicating with each other at different time zones, you know, one person here, another person here. So I found myself in far more. I've, I work with remote teams and with uh, overseas and nearshore teams, but never have I had so many different people across the globe with so many different time zones that weren't even connected by like a stand-up or a common meeting, right? They're working on different tools at different times with different priorities. So it has been a, a learning experience, right? That's the, the way we say we screw up a lot and have to learn from it, right? It's a learning experience. So it's been that. It's been figuring out, you know, how do you build teams? How do you build culture in an environment like that? And it's tough. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And uh, so like you mentioned, Carbon6 has a this. this distributed team you have teams right. i guess in the u.s canada and in, in indonesia yes. philippines and i philippines, guess a couple more eastern europe uh malaysia we have a couple in pakistan oh really we've got okay. some folks in india um all over the place now our largest groupings are in in canada in toronto we have a, mm -hmm. a large operational headquarters we have a fairly distributed workforce in America, and then we have a large group in the Philippines. And then we have a lot kind of smaller pockets all over the world. Got it. And can you um, can you elaborate on your strategy for this global hiring and building this distributed team? What are the maybe sure. key factors sure. um, that, that you consider when choosing the country to hire from? Because right now you're just the one team, right? Right. And maybe you have some, you know, uh, some criteria or checklist, something like that. It's a good question. And, and I would say that there's no sort of one slide answer. It's very iterative. So because I'm in software, I'm used to iteration and, and constantly moving something forward, seeing what works, you know, changing sort of agile thinking. It's been that way here is so I think that I think that most people begin their process moving into a global workforce over either economies of scale or cost, right? They're, they're looking for labor forces that cost less than, especially in the U.S., where, frankly, prices and, and salaries are unbelievable. Even, even though you know, there's a, a, a market downturn in the U.S., we're not seeing that with engineering in particular. So a lot of people start that way. And what I found through my last several companies is that if you, if you focus and prioritize for cost as number one, you're probably going to make some bad decisions. Uh, it, it's very tempting to say, well, this person costs half as much as, as a similar skilled resource Therefore, I can get two or I can I can you know, reduce cost by 50 percent. 
it's rarely the case. There are occasions where you sort of stumble onto someone. So I think we started with the, the same generalized economies of scale and, and trying to find inexpensive talent. What we have found is teams are better than individuals. And this, this isn't rocket science, right? It sounds like a very obvious thing to realize. But again, if you start hiring either through something like an Upwork or through some of the boards, right, to get in inexpensively because it costs more for a big company or a well-established uh, contractor, um, you get these individuals and, and it's very hard to provide them a culture, to provide accountability, to give them a feeling of having a job. Um, and, and we don't want to micromanage, but we do want to manage, right? So if someone is 12 hours offset and they're all by themselves at their home and there's no office to go to or no other set of group and, you know, they're making one stand up virtually or they're doing daily reporting through Slack, um, you're probably not going to get a lot of value. So even though you're potentially saving money, you're not actually moving the business forward and you're, you're actually spending more money than you were if you had someone that was maybe twice as expensive, but had a team, had a, a group of people that they saw maybe two times a week where they went into a shared workspace. Uh, that has become the place that we have found the most value is a global workforce that is team oriented, that wants to be a part of something that ideally wants to go in a couple days a week. And we've also found we have to really, really focus on great communication skills. And again, when you talk about a global workforce, sometimes that's challenging because you don't want to penalize someone because they don't speak American English, right? That's, that's not what we're trying to do. But if they're going to primarily be on a virtual standup or email in Slack, right, their communication becomes extremely important. And the frustration that is created if someone is not productive, but you're not sure if it's because of communication difficulties is really significant. So uh, I'll let you kind of pull on any thread there you want, but focusing on teams, focusing on integration into a team. And then there are a lot of logistics that sort of follow that. But those are the first things, right? Is we don't try and find just the cheapest person available. We try and find someone who's ideally part of a group or can be a part of a group that has some physical nearness to someone. Mm -hmm. And then the last thing I'd say is, you know, when I joined, for instance, we had a very large workforce in Malaysia. I think I went there week three or week four, very early. I just wanted to go out. And in addition to being able to lay my eyes on the facility and where they were meeting, it created a tremendous amount of positive cultural movement. You know, they, they understood they were cared about, right? They didn't feel like contractors off by themselves. They felt like part of the organization. So if you're going to maximize team and culture, right, you're going to have to spend some face time yourself. If you're going to ask someone to come into an office with others, then we have to be willing to take a very long flight or be, you know, an inconvenience, so to speak, and go spend time with them and show them that you're willing to do the same. So basically, you're looking for teammates who can and who want to, to, to have some impact on, on your culture, right? That's right. So, That's right. And, and with that, how do you approach assessing the skills of candidates from, from different regions? Do, do, you, do you have a great any question? I mean, there's, that? yeah, it's, it's a good question. And again, something that, you know, I've learned because I've not had this many different regions at one time before. 
there's a baseline set of skills and you can usually get a pretty good sense of that from fairly objective tools like a hacker rank or something, you know, th these things that are pretty straightforward, you know, you know, as well as your audience knows that those are becoming increasingly a game of who can Google the fastest or type into chat GPT the fastest. So they're not great final indicators, but they are a baseline. And there's a certain amount of, like if someone is fast enough and clever enough to pass a hacker rank test using chat GPT or, you know, stack overflow or whatever, I'm kind of okay with that. Like that in itself is, is positive because what do we do as engineers, right? We look stuff up. We forget all the time. What's the syntax for this? How do you use a Turner operator? I don't remember what's the map chart. Um, so, so that's the first thing, right? As we do that, one of the big realizations for me is that different regions have different sort of leading personality traits. In other words, there are some cultures and regions that are quite assertive, right? That really are interested in driving things forward. And that's not necessarily an individual choice. That's just that the culture feels that way, right? Um, sometimes you'll have that in a very self-made type of region. But then other regions are much more reactive. And again, it's not a personality failing. It's that they want the order. They want to come in. They want to be given a really clear direction. And they want to go execute against that. And it took, it took me some time personally to recognize that isn't necessarily a character flaw, right? In the way that in the U.S., if you interview two engineers, someone might be more assertive, someone might be more uh, reactive. And you might say, well, I really want the assertive one because we're in a startup and we're moving fast or whatever your case is. It's not fair to do that and to say, for instance, all of Malaysia is reactive, right? That's a crazy statement. But from a region and cultural perspective, they are a culture that prefers to uh, be given clear direction and go execute against that to be given accountability. And they don't necessarily want to be driving the project as individuals. And so once I realized that was cultural and regional, it became clear, now we need to place them in the right place where they can be effective. So don't put someone like that in a leadership role and then get upset because you're asking them to do a job that they're not well suited for. And that's, that's my failing, not their failing, right? If someone says, I just want to, I want to come in every day and put in a great eight hours of work and I want to, I want to close tickets. And then you say, great, you're in charge of the sprint and figuring out priorities. They're going to be unhappy. Whose fault is that? Right? It's my fault for putting them there. And so that was a big realization is that these regional differences in the global workforce have way more of an effect on where people can be effective and that it's our job as leaders to find those areas that they excel in. And, and if those areas exist, place people in them so they can really be good at their job, not pushing against their own inclination. Yeah, this Frank is picking very cool inside. Um, and you mentioned uh, ChatGPT. Do you use AI tools in terms of your hiring and validation process? Yes. Yeah, so this is pretty new, right? I, I think we're all trying to figure out how exactly to use this. And we use it quite a bit internally. It took a little bit of time to figure out how best to use it in an interview process, to be honest, because you can say something like, you know, tell me about something you use chat GPT on, but you know this, right? Any, any tell me about interview question 
I mean, you're going to get a little bit of a prepared answer. It doesn't mean it's not true, but you don't learn as much as sort of sitting next to someone. So what we did is we took one of our coding exercises that I put together, which is an algorithm that has a lot of problems and needs a lot of refactoring and produces some results that don't seem intuitive. We would have people go through that and figure it out and explain what they do and get it running and, and fix the output. Um, what I've done is I've actually changed the, the problem is the same, but I've changed the directions and now candidates can only solve this through using some sort of GPT interface. And the homework is it's the answer, but I'm actually more interested in the prompts that they wrote. And so one, are they using GPT? Do they know how to write a prompt? Two, are they starting to move beyond really simple? Tell me what this does. Tell me what this does. Are they, interacting with GPT in a way that's more effective and more efficient where they're, you know, perhaps having GPT write its own prompts, which is one of the things that I'm a big advocate of. And I'll be really honest, right? We have, we already had a pretty high fail rate on our coding exercises. It went much higher when we introduced that. And a lot of people will read the instructions and just say, I'm not interested which is a bummer, but it's just, it's so important okay. that people know how to do this. So we, we've held to it because we really believe the people that are digging in here are the senior engineers of, of the future. Mm -hmm. That's interesting. And uh, during the this recent AI business summit, you were speaking about this maturity of right. AI usage and this concept of prompt mastery, right? So in your experience, what, what maybe some other practical use cases where AI has made some, you know, significant yeah. impact on carbon six, maybe operations. Yeah, it's, it's a great question. Uh, so we use it and have used it in a number of ways. We do have, just to sort of get this out of the way, several of our tools that have integrated aspects of the natural language side, right? So they're allowing you to interact with a GPT style interface. Um, that has been important for the market to see. I would say it's been less important than our internal usage. So I'll talk about a few things that we've done. And then if you want, I'll give you a little bit about how we've gotten people into it, right? Because you have to sort of lead them there and they have to want to be a part. Um, we use it on the engineering or the R&D side primarily in two ways. One is if you're trying to figure out the steps or a sequence or a, a broad architecture. So as an example, and I, I use this example at the AI Summit, uh, one of my directors it was trying to put together a, a monitoring pipeline. So he's got a Python application. He wants to push out monitoring um, that he wants that to go into a queue and he wants to be able to have that delivered via like SMS or some sort of messaging service to, to various customers. And he, he was new to AWS. And so he didn't know the architecture within AWS to put together. So he wasn't, you know, looking at all these options and thinking maybe SMS, maybe SQL, I don't know. And so he asked GPT and it, and it spit out sort of that high level architecture. So it deconstructed his problem to a degree. And then he was able to focus on each individual piece. And some of them he wrote, some of them he had GPT write. But the real key there was this idea of, I'm not sure how to break this problem down into the right concrete steps. GPT broke it down for him. And then he was able to focus on the steps, which he was very capable of doing. So that's, that's one way. The other is to begin to focus on those individual connections, especially with integrations. So like we use NetSuite as our CRM, right? And NetSuite has a, a relatively unique, we'll call it, integration framework. It's not something that everybody knows. It's not 
you know, a REST API or something that's really well built out. They don't have like a swagger set of docs. And, and so we actually use GPT to write some of the simpler integrations into NetSuite because it was unfamiliar and it picked up the library we needed and effectively gave us some code demonstrations. We ended up having to rewrite maybe half of that code, but the real time savings was simply in not having to go read all that documentation, but instead to see some actual integration code and very quickly, I mean, within minutes, right, we've now got a call going in and we've got the, the keys right. We know which, which keys to use where. So those have been the primary ways of solving an individual problem, especially with new technology or a new framework we don't know, or the overall deconstruction of an architecture problem. Okay. And uh, tell me, can you can we maybe share your, your thoughts on, on what the future might look like for Carbon 6 and how you see AI fitting into that picture, I would say? It's, it's huge. I, I, I really... So look, a, a lot of your audience like me probably listens to the All In podcast. It's, it's one of the better technology podcasts out there. And, and those guys say all the time things like, you know, AI will allow a developer mm -hmm. to become that 10x developer. Um, mm -hmm. I actually love and hate that. I love it because I believe it's true. I hate it because people that are non-technical hear that and think, okay, I just need to give GPT to my engineers and they're all going to be 10x developers. Like that's that's all we have to do, right? And of course, you know, it's, it's like saying that, um, you know, that, that Node is better at backend than Java, right? Maybe and depends and, and do you know how to use it, right? And, and all those sorts of things. Uh, what I think is going to happen is we're going to see a greater division between higher order thinking in engineers and people that can do architecture and people that can think really critically that can problem solve and engineers that can work tickets. Right. And we're going to see more and more of the AI agents do the basic ticket implementation which leaves less room for someone who can only do that. But I do not believe we're anywhere close to a place where, you know, the creativity of human design is going away, where you don't need someone to look at the tools and architect how they're going to integrate and make decisions about REST versus GraphQL or both, or, you know, do, do you need SQS or should you use RabbitMQ? Like these are decisions that are not purely technical. They're born out of experience, business drivers, expertise. And I think you're going to see those that aspire to and work hard to understand system principles, right? They can talk about microservices at a high level and understand what they mean and not just we used a bunch of APIs or whatever the case may be. Those types of engineers are going to rise and excel, whether it's in um, a technical side or, or the people management side. And those that don't are going to find themselves sort of pushed and commoditized and less valuable. So still plenty of engineers, but not nearly as many engineers that do nothing all day, but but write, you know, type directly into their their you know, VS code or whatever. Got it. And so, and probably with that, my, my last question, what, what advice would you give to someone who wants to get noticed and get hired by a global first company like Carbon6? I think that I'm going to scatter shoot a little bit. I'm going to give you some answers that don't seem connected, but, but paint a broad picture. 
I think first somebody has got to come in with a very clear approach to remote work, right? It is, the, the reality is, is if you are expecting a company to do all the thinking, all the implementation of remote work and policies, then you're not going to be a great candidate because what we know as companies is that these are individuals and, and we need to meet halfway. And so we're, we're not going to think of everything, you know, you, you have someone, you go and you start using Hangouts and then people don't use their camera. So now you think, okay, we need your camera on. And now they're in a dark bedroom because not because they, they want to be, that's just the only room they have. And so now a presentation's happening and you're telling people use a virtual, like we're, we're always coming up with the next thing that needs to be done. I put a lot of value in a candidate that comes in and says, I know how to be remote and I know how to be effective. Here's my setup. I want to work with your culture. I want to fit in, but I'm not expecting you to figure it all out for me. That's the first thing. The second is, as I mentioned, communication, right? Is your written communication solid? Is your verbal communication as solid as you can reasonably make it? Are you comfortable you know, in the agile type environment where you're talking about tickets, where you're talking about objective things? And then third, to your point, is can you demonstrate actual usage of AI? It doesn't necessarily have to be the way everyone else is using it, but something. As an example, I've got a, a guy who uh, his English is not spectacular. He's working on it very hard, but it's not great. And so in Slack, if you message him, he actually types his response into GPT, which cleans it up for him, and then he puts it in Slack. Now, that's not necessarily improving his coding, but it's creative, right? It's effective. It actually adds value. And it tells me he knows what he's doing. Like he's thinking through how can I use AI to solve actual problems? So there's a guy who I'm going to look at and say, okay, maybe he's not using GPT or, or Copilot in his code, but is he going to pick that up when it adds value? Of course, because he's already shown he's thinking about it. So those three things, right? Do you have an approach to being remote where you're not just saying, figure it out company? You know, can you communicate really well and effectively? And then are you thinking about AI? Are you actually using it in some sort of meaningful way? And I should say, just to be really clear, I'm assuming that most engineers can actually engineer. So if you can't code, you're not going to get to any of those three, right? I didn't leave it out because I don't care. I left it out because I consider that just a, a baseline. Awesome. So I guess I guess we're good. So um, thanks thanks a lot, Brad, for sharing your insights on international hiring, uh, sharing your thoughts on AI and its impact. So uh, yeah, we wish you and Carbon Six all the best in your journey. Absolutely. Thanks for joining us. Thanks today. for the time. It's really great. Appreciate yeah, it. Thanks absolutely. so much.